Studios in Montana. This is News Nerds, the news podcast. On this week's episode, I talked to John Swartzberg. He is the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley in California. And he talks to me about COVID, COVID-19 testing, how the U.S. has dealt with COVID-19, COVID-19 vaccines, and more. Also on this week's episode, a new listener challenge with a great prize that will help you keep organized this coming year. When you have the answer, go to our website page, go and record a voice message, or go and send us an email to enter your name into the hat. I'm Ezra Graham, and you are listening to News Nerds, the news podcast. We have a new listener challenge for this week's episode, and I'm very excited about this because we haven't had a listener challenge in a very long time. So, here it is. So, take the name of a bird, and with the letters in that bird's name, unscramble those letters to make a common office supply item. So, again, take the name of a bird, and then... Take the letters, rearrange them, or unscramble them to get the name of a common office supply item. And then, if when you have the answer, write to us. That's newsnerdshost.wixsite.com slash podcast. Click the contact button on our website, and you can write your answer. In the answer, include the bird that you started out with, and then the office supply that you ended up with and how you did that. You can also send a voice message. That is great because then we can put your answer into the podcast if you win. So you can send a voice message by going to our Anchor page. That is anchor.fm slash newsnerds and click the message button. Or you can email us Just go to your email provider and compose a new email and enter the email address newsnerdshost at gmail.com. Again, that's newsnerdshost at gmail.com. And the prize for this new listener challenge is very exciting. As the new year rolls in, we have a 2021 planner. This will keep you organized in the new 2021 year and hopefully make it a better year. Um, It's a small really good um, planner for this next upcoming year and it has a pretty design on the front and it has all you need to keep yourself organized it has all the months of the year as well as a full map a full calendar page of 2021 and 2022 and you also can take notes if you need a grocery list or anything else there's extensive note pages in the back to keep your thoughts onto paper, uh, so you can refer back to that. And if you win, we'll ship that all to you. You will get that special 2021 agenda or planner, as long with News Nerds bags, News Nerds stickers, and other News Nerds gifts. Thank you, and I would love to see all your answers come in to News Nerds.
in just a second, we're going to go to my interview with Dr. John Schwartzberg. He is at UC Berkeley in California, and he talks to us about COVID-19 and the questions that have been raised in the upcoming weeks. Dr. Schwartzberg is the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley in California, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. So first of all, could you tell me what your job is at the at UC Berkeley in California? Sure. I teach medical students, and I also teach students getting their master's and PhD in public health. And the courses that I teach are related to infectious diseases. That's my specialty. So you've also written some wellness handbooks um, later in the 2000s. Tell me about those. Well, I'm also the editor of the UC Berkeley Wellness Letter. And that's the letter that we send out to the public um, about how to, how to keep your health as good as possible and how to work with your physician to make sure you're staying healthy. And so we published several books um, that have to do with wellness and I've been the editor of those as well. So let's go on to COVID-19 questions. So we have just gotten some good news about the COVID-19 vaccine uh, that may come out in the upcoming months. Moderna is reporting 95% effectiveness in some patients and Pfizer is report reporting about 90% effectiveness in some patients. Also the com company AstraZeneca is reporting about 70% effectiveness in some patients. So which of these would be the best uh, from these possible vaccines? Well, you know, we don't know yet. And the reason we don't know is because the only information we have about all three of those vaccines is the press releases from the companies that produce them. Their data that they have um, has not yet been subjected to scrutiny by the scientists at the FDA or independently to um, medical journals where there's peer review. That means other doctors and scientists review the material. People who have no vested interest in whether or not the vaccine succeeds in terms of financial interest. So we don't really know yet um, very much about these vaccines other than that what the companies have told us. And we need outside independent reviewers. That's gonna happen very quickly. So let's now go through the vaccines one by one. And could you tell me what we do know about them and the effectiveness and all those sure. statistics? First so Pfizer is first announced, Pfizer first announced successful re results on their vaccine trials. So what are the pros and cons of the Pfizer vaccine? Well, the, one of the really nice things about this vaccine, it appears to be very protective in terms of preventing people from getting sick. Um, they're quite a, uh, they've, they vaccinated over 40,000 people or over 40,000 people got either the vaccine or they got a placebo. Uh, that's, that is just a, uh, a saline saltwater shot. Um, and they looked at um, about a week after they finished the vaccination of all these people, they looked and wanted to find out how many got sick. And 
they identified, um, I think it was around 170 or so that got sick. And of those, almost all of them were in the group that got the placebo, the saltwater injection. There were very few that got the vaccine. And um, 11 people got quite ill, um, but only um, one of those people got the vaccine and the other 10 got the placebo. So that's how we got to the number that it seemed to prevent illness in about 94% of the people. And it seemed to present, prevent serious illness in about um, the same percentage, 92%. So uh, that's very encouraging. Again, those are, da those are numbers from the company and we have to, to verify, verify that. There also are some problems with it. Um, the biggest problem is that it has to be kept at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit, a temperature that never occurs in California, but it might occur where you are. Um, although I doubt it gets even that cold. That's very, very cold. And so it presents some very serious logistical problems in terms of how we're gonna be able to ship this vaccine and keep it at that temperature. And it, and it has to be kept at that temperature until it's gonna be used or just several hours before. It can be kept in the refrigerator for a little while, but not that long. So those are some problems with the vaccine. It didn't appear to cause any serious side effects, but again, it's not a large number. Well, it was a large number of people, but have more data on that. It did make people feel pretty sick for maybe up to a day with some fever and body aches. So they might miss a day of work if they get the vaccine. At least some of them, they reported that in just under 4%. The other vaccine that is um, on tap to be released probably sometime in the middle to later December is the Moderna vaccine. It is very similar in terms of its mechanism of action to the Pfizer vaccine. Um, it also has about 94% efficacy based upon the studies done pretty much the same way the Pfizer studies were done. Um, so that's very encouraging. They also had 11 people who got very, very sick, had to be hospitalized and one of those people died. But all 11 of those people were in the placebo group, the saltwater group, and none of those people got the vaccine. So again, both vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna seem to protect against people getting seriously ill and protect against illness itself. The Moderna vaccine has to be kept at about minus five degrees um, Fahrenheit. So much less, um, uh, much less strict of a temperature necessity than the Pfizer vaccine. So that's an advantage. Uh, it also can remain stable in the refrigerator temperature for up to about a month. So that's an advantage. So in these preliminary studies or the preliminary data that we have, both of those vaccines seem to have comparable efficacy um, in terms of preventing disease. And um, both of them have some logistical problems, the Pfizer much more so than the Moderna. The other vaccine that we've heard about is the vaccine from Os uh, Oxford and AstraZeneca. Um, that vaccine has been had trials in multiple countries, but it's had more problems associated with it. They made an error in terms of the dosage with a group of almost 3000 people. 
And so the first, the, the first dose was half the normal dose because of an error. And the second dose was a normal dose. When they discovered that error, they, they corrected it and almost 9,000 people got um, a full dose for the first dose and a full dose for the booster. All three of these vaccines require a booster shot at about a month later. So it's a little disconcerting that uh, they had an error. They made an error in terms of the development of their vaccine. And that worries people because we don't want to see these kind of errors being made. Um, the curious thing was that the, the group of people, the almost 3,000, 2,500 people or so, that got the smaller dose for the first dose and the larger dose for the second dose, they, they, that showed efficacy of over 90%. But the group that got a full dose for the first dose and a full dose for the second dose, that showed efficacy of only 62%. Everybody is scratching their heads about that. It doesn't seem to make sense. You'd think that the, the group that got two full doses would have a better response than half a dose and a full dose. So we don't understand that. I don't think the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is gonna be approved anytime soon. I think they have to do a lot more research on it. Uh, my guess would be that they may apply for a license, what we call an emergency use authorization or an EUA um, sometime in March. So those are the three vaccines that um, uh, we've heard a lot about in the month of November. When the FDA approves some or all or none of these vaccines, who will be the first to get them and when will these doses be available? Well, today the advisory committee for the Centers for Disease Control just came out with some preliminary information about that. They're recommending that people who are in nursing homes, older people in nursing homes and other kinds of extended care facilities be amongst the first people to get it because they have the highest mortality rates. Um, they've caused uh, an enormous number of deaths. An enormous number of deaths in that group have occurred. Um, the other group that um, the advisory committee to the CDC is recommending are um, physicians and nurses on the front lines, like emergency room doctors and nurses, doctors and nurses, and other healthcare professionals who are right on the front lines and dealing with a lot of the COVID patients. So those, those will be the first two groups that are likely to get it. But you know, the CDC doesn't determine who gets it. The FDA will allocate uh, the vaccine to each state, depending on the state's population. And then the governors of each state will determine who will get it first. But the advisory committee is almost always followed. Uh, the CDC almost always follows the advice of the advisory committee and the states almost always follow the advice of the CDC. So I think we'll see um, some healthcare workers who are um, on the front lines and older people in nursing homes and other congregate settings um, be the first groups to get it. So the idea of the vaccine trials that Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, as well as uh, Oxford along with AstraZeneca, uh, is that some people get the true vaccine, some people get the placebo, then they let those people go about their normal lives and some people get sick 
and let, then they take the results, analyze them, and come out, come out with these results that we're seeing now. You got it. That's exactly what they're doing. So they look at the people who got sick, and those are the ones they, they analyze. So the drugs that are going into these vaccines are a bit different with each vaccine. How is AstraZeneca different from the other two vaccines in the, mechanics? The, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines are what we call RNA vaccines. They're little pieces of RNA that are put in a, inside of a fatty coating called a lipid coating. And that's what's injected into people. The RNA gets inside of our cells and, our cell, and the RNA tells our cells to produce a protein. And that protein is called the spike protein. And when it produces that spike protein, our immune system recognizes that protein is foreign and produces antibodies to that spike protein. So then if we get infected with the virus that has all these spike proteins around its surface, that's what gives it that crown appearance. That's how it got the name coronavirus, corona for crown. Um, when our immune system sees these viruses with all those spike proteins around it, it puts antibodies on those spike proteins. And that spike protein is necessary for the virus to attach to sites on our cells to get inside of our cells. But if there are antibodies all over that spike protein, it can't get inside of our cells and the virus can't reproduce. So that's how those two va vaccines work. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine works differently. It takes a, um, a, vac a, a virus that doesn't cause any harm to humans. It's actually a, a chimpanzee virus that's an adenovirus. In adenoviruses, there are strains of adenovirus that do, do cause a cold in humans. They can cause conjunctivitis or eye infections in humans, and they can cause other problems in humans. But this particular strain of adenovirus is found in chimpanzees, can hardly replicate inside of us and can't make us sick. So they take that adenovirus and then they put in its own genetic material, the information in the RNA to code for that spike protein. So when they inject that adenovirus with that spike, the RNA information with the spike protein in it, our bodies kill off the adenovirus, but when they engulf that adenovirus, it releases the RNA inside of the, our cells and our cells produce the spike protein. And then it's the same thing as the other two vaccines. Our immune system recognizes that spike protein, produces antibodies to it. And the next time, if we ever get infected with the coronavirus, the antibodies will latch onto that spike protein and won't let it get inside of our cells and it protects us. What are the other vaccine companies that will likely release their results? What are they? And how soon will we see new results from different companies? Right, well, there, there are several that are very similar to the um, uh, AstraZeneca um, Oxford vaccine. Johnson & Johnson in this country is making one that's very similar. It's a different adenovirus as the vector, but it's otherwise the same. Um, the Chinese have made a, um, uh, a vaccine with an adenovirus that they're using in, in their population. And the Russians have made a, a similar vaccine. So 
uh, they're being used. Um, the Chinese and the Russian vaccines haven't gone through very rigorous trials in terms of safety or their efficacy. Um, I'm disappointed that they uh, are vaccinating lots of people without that safety and efficacy data. Um, so besides those two types of vaccines, the, the RNA in a fatty or lipid coat and the adenovirus vaccines, or the viral vector vaccines. There are also vaccines that are, are pieces of the, of the um, virus, proteins off of the virus that we inject directly into people. So they're not the whole virus, so they can't replicate, but our body will recognize those proteins as foreign and develop antibodies to them. Um, none of those have been um, gone through phase three trials, finished any phase three trials yet. And then there are what are called whole virus vaccines. That is um, the virus that the SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID um, is what's called attenuated. That, that means it's weakened by a variety of means so that when it's injected into people, it can't replicate very well. Um, there, none of those have been released yet um, or anywhere near being released. And the other, uh, group of vaccines in the whole virus vaccine family are vaccines where the virus is killed. That is, it can't replicate, but the whole virus is injected into people. We've been using um, that technique with many vaccines for years, and it seems to work very well and appears to be very safe. The attenuated vaccines are the killed vaccines. So there's precedent for those. Um, there's some precedent for um, injecting pieces of the virus with some of the vaccines that we use. And there is also precedent for using an adenovirus vector vaccine. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the company AstraZeneca that developed that developed a vaccine for um, Ebola. It seemed to work very well, that it was a vector vaccine. Um, but there's never been used in humans before RNA vaccines like the Moderna and the um, Pfizer vaccines. They've never been um, used before. We didn't know whether they'd work or whether, they're, whether or not they're safe. And at least the preliminary data from the companies suggests they are both safe and effective. I know I've seen the surprising, the surprising vaccine from uh, Russia, and they haven't really tested that on any people. And Vladimir Putin's daughter has gotten, and it seems like they should test that a bit more before they come to the conclusion that it's going to protect people against COVID and not harm anybody. You're at, I completely agree with you. So, what? Darn it. Here we go. Will U.S. citizens be allowed to pick which vaccine they would like to take, or is that not possible because of shortages um, of this, these new vaccines? Um, there's, there's going to be shortages for a long time. Um, how long is, is really unclear. Um, this, this month, let's say that uh, Pfizer's first in line, it may get approved right either on the 10th or right after the 10th of December. Um, Moderna is going to be 
Um, the committee is going to meet on the 17th of December. It'll, if it's going to be approved, it'll be approved right after that. So between the two um, companies, there may be enough vaccine to vaccinate somewhere between 30, 20 and 35 million pe people in the United States. Um, that sounds like a lot, um, but there's 330 million people in the United States. So um, it's unlikely that it's gonna make much of a difference. In the next, and remember everybody needs two doses. So you have to put that number in half. Um, and then in January, they'll probably have about the same amount of vaccine available from those two companies. So we might be up to maybe 50, 40 or 50 million people vaccinated by the end of January. There are 21 million um, healthcare um, workers taking care of COVID patients in the United States. So um, it's gonna take at least a couple months to get all of those people vaccinated who choose to get vaccinated. Um, once by February, we should see um, the, both of those companies ramping up their production. And the hope is that even if it's just those two companies, if all goes well with the distribution, the logistics, and there are no surprises in terms of efficacy or safety, the hope is that everybody who wants to get a vaccine in the United States may get one by the end of June. That's uh, optimistic, but it's um, feasible. So there are some organizations that are trying to get the countries, the major countries of the world to uh, share their vaccines if they um, produce some. And that one of those is I think called COVAX. Um, President Trump has refused to go into that agreement, but that is taking that at a more broad uh, view, looking at the countries that have, uh, don't have as good as of a medical um, seen as the U.S. does and taking them into account and making sure that they get the vaccines that they need and get they get the health care that they need. So what is it going to look like in the world with these new vaccines? Yeah, that's a wonderful question and a very important one. From an ethical standpoint, we have to make sure that, that everybody who needs a vaccine gets as soon as possible. And yet, the way our society and the way the world seems to work is that the countries with the most money are going to wind up getting it first. And we have to, even here in the United States, we have to make sure that we don't vaccinate the people who have the money, but we want to make sure we vaccinate people who need it the most, whether or not they have the financial resources. That's a critical piece of the vaccine rollout. Um, worldwide, um, we're gonna need vaccines that, that are easier to transport than certainly than the Pfizer vaccine um, because um, maintaining that cold chain in the United States is very difficult. It would be impossible in, in much of the developing world. <clears throat> so we'll have to have other vaccines uh, before we can really get them to the people who will desperately need them. Um, and the hope is that we will have those sometime in the first or second quarter of uh, the next of the coming year, um, but ethicists have to be involved in all of the decisions that are made about who gets these vaccines. How do you react to the lack of children in Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine trials? 
Well, um, I wish we had data in China, but I understand why we don't yet have it because children, uh, particularly children under the age of 11 um, or 11 or younger, um, don't get sick very often. Um, it's very rare that they get seriously ill. There have been cases of seriously ill and there have been rare deaths in children, but they're very, very uncommon. So um, we wanted to first study it in terms of see if the vaccine worked in people who would get sick. So that's why we wanted to vaccinate, especially older people, people who, if they get infected, they would really get sick. Um, and that's what we did because we had to establish that first because if it didn't work in preventing illness in people who often get sick, the vaccine is no good. So now that we know, at least we think we know that these vaccines do protect older people, now we have to study children as well because we wanna protect them for two reasons. Of course, number one is to prevent the rare illness that occurs in children but also we want to hopefully prevent them from getting sick or getting infected so they can't spread it to other people who might get very sick, like mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. Yeah, we've seen lots of evidence um, that kids can spread COVID-19, but there's been uh, a, a, not a very high percentage of kids that get a very high, a high, I mean, a, a severe case of COVID. So could you now compare other forms of COVID that we've seen recently, like SARS with the COVID-19 that we are now seeing? We haven't seen any virus spread this easily cause this much disease in a hundred years. The last time we encountered any virus that did anything like this was the great influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. And that influenza virus, that particular strain was far more serious than COVID-19. Um, in one year, that virus in 1918-19 killed probably around um, 50 million human beings on this planet. We don't know exactly, people have said 25 to 100 million, most people say about 50 million people in 12 months. In the United States, probably about 650,000 people died in 12 months from that virus in 1918-1919. So we're not on tap to have as many deaths in 2021 as we were in 1918-1919. A lot of that has to do with much better medical care, of course. Uh, but this virus also does not appear to be as virulent as other viruses and virulence is a fancy word for meaning that this virus doesn't appear to make people as sick and kill people as easily as that 1918-1919 influenza virus did. So we just had a 2020 election under very interesting circumstances and Joe Biden is now the president-elect. So as the incoming Biden administration transitions into the White House in January, what would you like to see and what would be necessary to curb the spread that we are likely to see um, rise in the next couple of months? No, sure. I, the, the first thing I would like to see is the president who tells the truth to the American people, who doesn't lie about the virus and about how to prevent it. 
which Trump did repeatedly on a daily basis. The second thing I'd like to see is the president who doesn't politicize key agencies that are so necessary to the safety of the American people. For example, the FDA and the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. The third thing I'd like to see is a president and everybody who works with the president and vice president to model good behavior. That is to wear a mask, to socially distance, and to not bring people together in congregate settings. If those things alone were done, we would be in much better shape. But beyond that, we need to have an advisory committee that, that Biden has already appointed with some outstanding people, many of whom I, several of whom I know, uh, they're outstanding people, to advise the president about what is the best way to tackle this problem. And they're already getting to work now, well before the inauguration. Another thing that needs to be done is a plan, a national plan for making certain that our healthcare workers have the necessary PPE. That has not been done here in the United States. The fact that the richest country in the world has doctors and nurses still scrambling for adequate protective gear in hospitals is absolutely criminal. And that needs to desperately be done as soon as possible. And of course, to roll out this vaccine as quickly and as safely as possible. And that has to be done on a national level and it has to be done well on a national level. And to continue to invest in the science behind developing medications that people can take to either treat the illness effectively so they don't wind up in the hospital or to even prevent the illness from occurring. That is prophylactic medications or preventative medications. So those are, I think, a handful of the things that the Biden administration needs to do. And I've looked carefully at their plans and they include all of those things. So let's zoom in now on states like Montana and Texas, which have recently seen an influx in COVID-19 cases and fatalities. Why is this? Well, I can only cite some observations. We, the reason why I say that is because we can't know exactly why it attacks one place and not another. We saw, saw that same phenomena occur during 1918 and 1919 with influenza where one city might get very, hit very hard and another city not hard at all. One state hit very hard, another state not hit very hard at all. So it's the, the metaphor that I use is sort of like this fire that's burning and throwing off embers. And the embers, if, they, if the ember lands in a place where people are wearing masks and social distancing and not getting together in congregate settings, particularly inside, that ember has very little chance of lighting a fire. On the other hand, if that ember lands in a, a state or a city where people aren't masking, they aren't social distancing, they aren't being careful of congregate settings. They're going to bars and drinking a lot in congregate settings. They're going to restaurants, particularly indoors, doing the same. Um, those are settings where if the ember lands there, there's going to be plenty of human fuel for it to burn. And so I think that when you look at the map right now of where 
the highest number of cases per million are in the United States as of today, you'll see that the preponderance of those states are states that have governance that um, tends to not support masking, social distancing, and large gatherings. And um, the states that tend to do that more have fared much better in general. There are exceptions to that, but in general. Many healthy people are also getting severe cases of COVID-19. Well, not many, but some healthy people are getting COVID-19 cases that turn out to be severe. Why is this? We don't know why some people get infected and they don't even get sick. And some people get infected and they get sniffles and that's it. Some people get a cough and some fever, but aren't very sick. Some people get a cough and fever and lose their sense of smell and maybe taste and get well. And then some people get high fevers, terrible body aches, a horrible cough and short of breath, and they have to be hospitalized. And some of those people wind up in the intensive care unit and some of those people wind up dying. And we don't know why that somebody winds up dying, somebody winds up hospitalized and other people wind up getting infected and don't even get sick and don't even know they're infected. So it's very hard to predict. We do know that there's certain people are at greater risk of getting real sick and dying. The elderly, people who are very obese, people who have diabetes, people who have chronic lung disease, people who have chronic heart problems. Those are a few examples. There are, it's a long list of people that are at higher risk of getting very sick and dying. So those are people we try to identify and that's why we're gonna push them up to the beginning of the line for the vaccine to protect them. Yeah, that's we've we've learned much about COVID nineteen, and yet we have so much to learn still. And I thank all the scientists and everybody who is working on that right now. So, is the United States supposed to have a plan and a stockpile of equipment like PPE, masks, gowns, and ventilators when a pandemic like this hits? Yes, the public health in the United States has been severely neglected for at least three or four decades. And we're paying a dear price for that right now. Um, it's interesting that in, um, in the Obama administration, they put together a, um, a governmental group to um, make sure that we had adequate stockpiles of all the things you listed. And um, that group was, um, not dismantled during the Trump administration, but it was um, uh, made very less important and had a much smaller voice. Uh, pandemic planning uh, was something that was done on a regular basis um, uh, in the United States. Um, during the Trump administration, pandemic planning has not uh, played much of a role. It's very unfortunate that um, it was a perfect storm with this virus. From the perspective of the virus, it was a great time to jump from bats to human beings because it was a time when public health had been so underfunded, when we had a, a very fractured healthcare system and we had a president who didn't do anything about the pandemic. Um, as a matter of fact, did destructive things about it. So the combination of those three things were a perfect storm for allowing this virus to do what it's done in the United States. 
And what has it done in the United States? Well, 270,000 Americans in 11 months are dead because of this virus. We have 4% of the world's population, the United States does. Yet we have 21% of the cases and 19% of the world's deaths. It is an abject failure. The United States has been a failure in terms of the management of this pandemic. And it's a tragedy and much of it was unnecessary. The Obama administration, I think, put together a pamphlet of vaccine preparedness and what the incoming Trump administration needed to know. And I and the, the article I was reading said that the Trump administration or Trump um, didn't even read the pamphlet. So when Trump himself got COVID-19 and then went to Walter Reed and then recovered, this really did not change his view on the virus. He took many drugs that he really liked and really um, endorsed in his COVID-19 briefings like hydroxychloroquine to help him through. Why has he been so fixated on these drugs and what has research shown about the effectiveness or non-effectiveness of the drugs? Sure. Well, I can't explain why he's so fixated on hydroxychloroquine has been. Um, I don't understand the workings of his mind in any case. That said, um, hydroxychloroquine has been thoroughly studied in double-blinded control trials. And not only doesn't it work, but it also does not, it also has side effects that can be dangerous or primarily to the heart. So um, nobody should be taking hydroxychloroquine either to prevent COVID or to treat it. Um, the drugs that Trump got, remdesivir, uh, appears to shorten hospital stay by about four days. Uh, it doesn't seem to change the mortality rates. Um, the monoclonal antibodies that he got um, have not been adequate, subjected to adequate double-blinded controlled trials, but it's likely they would have helped. And the dexamethasone, the corticosteroid that he got, has been shown to prevent mortality. So um, those drugs that he got um, probably did help him. And also he took steroids and he said he was feeling better than ever. Right, that's the dexamethasone. Oh, okay. So how do you think healthcare and pandemic preparedness as well as the pandemic research that uh, many scientists have been doing, will, how will they all learn from this COVID-19 pandemic? I think an enormous amount. If you think about in 11 months, we've identified and know exactly the genetic code of this virus. We've learned a lot about it, how it transmits and a lot about how it causes disease. Our doctors have learned a lot about how to treat it effectively. Um, we've, all, we've already developed two vaccines that appear to work and a third that probably does. And that's all in 11 months. So we've learned an enormous amount about this virus, and not only about this virus, but we've learned an enormous amount about how to tackle the next pandemic virus and the next one and the next one. This is the fourth pandemic that we've had in the 20th century. Of course, this is far more serious than the other three, but we've had four in 20 years. 
So we've got to be prepared. Our science has to be prepared. Our public health has to be prepared. Our medical system of care has to be prepared to tackle these other pandemics that are most assuredly going to occur probably on a regular basis. And all these things that we've learned from COVID, we are going to be able to apply to these new pandemic strains that will appear. And so we should be in much better shape as long as we have a government that adequately invests in the science, the public health and people's care, medical care. If we have those three things consistently done by the American government, we'll be in good shape to tackle future pandemics. So the, as you mentioned, the vaccines that we've seen come out have been, they've been only at this for 11 months. Do you think this has been too fast of a process or do you think they've done the necessary things to have a safe vaccine that actually works? Um, the, the process has been speeded up enormously. The fastest we'd ever developed a vaccine in the past was 12 years. But no steps have been skipped in the development of this vaccine. We threw an enormous amount of money at it and the Trump administration deserves credit for that. Um, and lots of people have tried to develop the vaccine and we've looks like we've been successful. So um, as long as no steps are skipped, as long as the data is reviewed by independent scientists who have no financial interest in the vaccine, if all looks well, I'll be confident that if a vaccine is approved by the FDA, that I would roll up my sleeve and get it. And President Trump put together the Operation Warp Speed earlier this year. That is a work, a, a operation that supposedly is helping speed up the vaccine. And now that is, it seems to have worked because we have now two vaccines that appear to work pretty well, um, but that's pretty, that's, that's only the first results they've given us. So how effective do you think this operation was and how well was it constructed? I think generally speaking, it, it, um, it worked very well. Um, there's the financial incentive for the companies and there was the money to help the companies develop it. So I think that it went very well, given the fact that we have over 70 vaccines worldwide being developed. Um, everybody sees a pot of gold at the end of the line if they can develop a vaccine that works. So I think that um, Operation Work Speed, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it looks like it may have achieved its purpose. Now switching gears to COVID-19 tests. What is the process of giving a, getting a COVID-19 test and where do they stick the swab? There's the current tests are being done where you stick a swab either all the way back to the back of your nose. That's the sort of the gold standard, but it's quite uncomfortable to do. Um, and most common test that's done is they stick a swab about an inch into your nose and just rub it around. And we can also stick a stop right at the inside of your nose, right at the tip inside. Those are three ways we get it. The most common is about an inch in, but we can also get it from spit, from saliva. And there's a lot of studies now that suggest that that may work very well. And um, there are other studies that show that you can swab the 
lining of your cheek, and that might work very well. They're still studying those things. So there are a variety of sources, but the generally, well, all of the sources are from either through your nose or through your mouth. And that's where the virus tends to live quite well. So there has also been a talk of COVID-19 tests that you can conduct from your home. And this may be far off in the future, but what technology will be needed for an affordable home test? And when will we see this happen, if we see it happen at all? I don't think it's going to be very far off in the future. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't start seeing home tests available in January or February. Um, the hope is that these tests will be very cheap, ideally a dollar a day or less, um, and that people could do them every day. And even if they're not very sensitive, if you do them every day, we'll identify people who are, um, if it turns positive, identify that person because they'll be available within minutes to maybe 10 or 15 minutes right after you do the test. So before you brush your teeth, you might do the swab in your mouth or spit into something um, and then put it in the device or just look for, you may not even have a device. It may just be a color change if it's positive. And if it's negative, chances are you're not infected and you go about your daily business. If it's positive, you stay home in quarantine, in, in isolation. So I think that's gonna be really helpful in controlling this pandemic. And those home tests um, will likely be widely available, I think within the next two to three months. So recently, the before Thanksgiving, the CDC recommended to not travel because of the influx in COVID-19 cases. So because of all the traveling that was done last week because of Thanksgiving holiday, do you predict that we will have a large spike in COVID-19 cases? And if so, how large? Well, um, the most recent data I've seen is um, the number of people traveling this year is about 40% of what we traveled last year. But that still represented millions and millions of people. And this, this Thanksgiving holiday occurred in the midst of a tremendous surge that we've been having for the last few weeks. So the numbers have been going straight up and then we have the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, with all that travel and people being inside in, in congregate settings with other people, probably without masks because they're eating. Well, it's very likely that's going to cause a, an, an additional surge on top of the surge we're seeing. And that will take about two weeks to be seen. So we probably will see the numbers go up again or go up even more, the surge on top of the surge by the first week after the first week of, of this month. So sometime around, I would guess the 8th, 9th, 10th of this month is when we'll start to see the cases going up. But then people have Christmas parties and holiday parties in December, and those are gonna cause cases to go up. So it's gonna be a surge on top of the surge on top of the surge. And then we have Christmas and people are gonna to get together for Christmas. And that's gonna cause a surge on top of the surge on top of the surge on top of the surge. And then we have New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And that's gonna cause 
a surge on top of a surge on top of a surge on top of a surge. So I think that <clears throat> we're going to see um, the cases continue to increase throughout the month, of, throughout this month, the month of December, and we're going to see them continue to increase at least for the first two to three weeks of January. And then hopefully we'll start to see some degree of leveling off through the remainder of January and February. And I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that we'll see a significant decline by March. But Jan, December, January, and February are likely to be very dark months. What is the best way to keep COVID-19 under control this holiday season? Um, stay in your home, in your own bubble. Don't get together with other people. When you have to go out, wear a mask and socially distance and don't get in any settings where there's congregate settings of other people. Thank you so much, John. You're welcome, Ezra. it's time for our geographical location challenge. In first place in the United States, we still have Virginia with 11% of all News Nerds listeners. In second place, we have Ohio with 6% of all News Nerds listeners. And in third place, California with 5% of all News Nerds listeners. We also have Connecticut and New Mexico. They're in fourth and fifth place, but they were bumped down from the leaderboards just a couple of weeks ago by those three states now in the top three. We also have international listeners listening in, including recently Bosnia and Herzegovina. We also have France and the Philippines. And I know a little while ago we also had India and Thailand on the scoreboards, but not this week. And that is it for this Geographical Location Challenge. for this week's episode of News Nerds. Thank you, John Swartzberg, for being on this week's episode. And you can find us all over the place on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get the News Nerds podcast. Our website is newsnerdshost.wixsite.com slash podcast, and you can go there to do anything. Contact us, listen to past episodes of News Nerds, and subscribe. That's also free. If you subscribe, you can get crucial emails that tell you what's happening with News Nerds and when to expect the latest episodes, who's on the latest episodes, and more extra stuff. I'm Ezra Graham, and you have been listening to News Nerds, the news podcast.